Well, good morning. It was the 23rd of October, 1940, when Edson Arantes do Nascimento was born in Tres Corozues, Brazil. The harsh part of the sermon is over. <laughs> and it was there where Nascimento grew up in poverty and obscurity. And, and like most Brazilian boys, he grew up with a love for football, or what we would call soccer. And, and this young man began to play, but his parents couldn't afford a soccer ball. So what he would typically do is get a sock, stuff it with newspaper, tie it with a string, and kick that around the streets. And if that wasn't available, maybe go grab a grapefruit that was laying around on the ground. And this grapefruit kicking, slum-dwelling kid from nowhere Brazil would go on to become arguably the greatest soccer player in the history of the sport and the most famous athlete in the world, so much so that in the 1980s, when he went and visited President Ronald Reagan at the White House, they gathered for a press conference and Reagan said, quote, my name is Ronald Reagan and I'm the President of the United States of America, but you don't need to introduce yourself because everybody knows who Pele is. A poor kid from nowhere Brazil, who was thrust into prominence because the God of the universe had given him a unique gift, in this case, the gift to play soccer. And and this morning, we're going to look at another young, poor kid. This time, a young girl named Mary from nowhere Israel, who God thrust into prominence because God gives her the most unique gift of all, the privilege to bear the one and only Messiah in her very womb. So I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 26. As we see how this miracle of life unfolded and how this woman of incredible faith responded. Starting in verse 26, Luke writes, Now in the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, if you were with us last week when we we started our series in the book of Luke, you know that the series really started with the angel Gabriel making an appearance. Last week, which chronologically speaking takes place six months Before today's passage, the angel Gabriel came and visited a man by the name of Zacharias and his postmenopausal wife Elizabeth and told them, hey, you're going to have a baby and you're going to name him John. And here this morning we see the angel Gabriel out and about again, this time visiting a young girl named Mary with a similar message. And while the message and circumstances are somewhat similar, there are definitely some differences between the two appearances. For starters, Zechariah was a priest. And when he's visited by Gabriel, he's working in Jerusalem. And not only is he working in Jerusalem, he's laboring in the temple. So he's at the hub of Jewish worship. He's at the hub of the Jewish activities of the day. Mary, on the other hand, is not. Luke tells us that she is from a town called Nazareth. And just so his readers can kind of orient where that actually is, he tells them that Nazareth is in Galilee. 
It reminds me of when I used to talk about, or when I talk about going to see my mima and my papa, who live in Sherino, Texas. Exactly. You have no idea. And so when I tell people I'm going to Sherino, this town, this thriving metropolis of 400 people in East Texas, I always tell people, okay, yeah, it's about 25 miles east of Nacogdoches on Highway 21, up Highway 7 from Lufkin, about 45 minutes away. Oh, okay. And so that's what Luke is doing here. He's orienting his readers to where Nazareth is. And what it tells us is that Mary is country. She's a country girl. She's rural. She's from the backwoods. She's from Nazareth. And not only is there a significant difference between them in terms of geography, there's a significant difference between them in terms of age. Because as I mentioned, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're old. But Mary is not. Mary is actually quite young. She's a teenager. Possibly as young as 12 or 13 years old when Gabriel visits her. She's a middle school girl. Let that sink in for a minute. The Greek word translated virgin means a young, unmarried girl, and it carries with it the implications of virginity. And she's engaged to a guy by the name of Joseph. And it's really more than engagement. It's a betrothal. And in that day and age, that was a two-step process to get married. You were betrothed about a year out, as young as 12 years old. And that's really when you kind of become officially married, actually. But then you consummate it a year later with the ceremony and the other things that go along with that. And so that becomes the official marriage date. But really, she's already legally bound to this guy named Joseph at this time as a young girl. And Luke tells us that her fiancé is a descendant of David, which is an important nugget of truth as we're going to unpack because the Messiah was to come through the line of David. And so Gabriel arrives at Mary's doorstep, and he says in verse 28, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. So essentially, Gabriel shows up, Mary's there, and he says, Mary, you are favored. You are special. And the Lord is with you in a unique way. And understandably, Mary's a little bit afraid and also confused. Because she's like, special, favored, I'm a girl, I'm young, I'm poor, and I live in Nazareth. I'm about as ordinary as it gets. Look, Mary did not suffer from, uh, she was not a victim of low self-esteem. She's just kind of calling a spade a spade. But we're reminded of the truth that God does not see as man sees, God sees the heart. And we're reminded of the truths of 1 Corinthians where Paul tells us that God loves to use the shame, excuse me, loves to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so Mary didn't have this resume of some five-star spiritual prospect in the eyes of Israel, but she had everything she needed in the eyes of God, starting with humility. Because one of the things we're going to see from Mary that just shines through and that challenges us and that's so endearing about her is her humility. 
Mary does, Mary understands in something that we should do well to remember that all good gifts are a result of God's grace. All good gifts. Let that sink in. All good gifts are a result of God's grace. His undeserved favor. His undeserved merit. It's not something we earn. It's something that he freely gives according to the riches of his mercy and his grace. And the problem is that far too often, and I'm as guilty as anybody, I tend to live with such a sense of entitlement. Entitlement. Like the world owes me something. I mean, just this week, I pulled into Starbucks drive-thru, and I was upset because there was more than like three cars in line. And I'm going, oh, really? Unbelievable. This is brutal. Just an incredible sense of entitlement. And the problem is that when we live with a sense of entitlement, what it does is it often blinds us to God's love and grace in our life that is with us and around us and upon us every day. I mean, the fact that the sun came up this morning, it's God's grace. The fact that you got up this morning, it's God's grace. He doesn't owe you a day, but you got up. And that's God's grace. The fact that you went and had breakfast and you weren't worrying about where your next meal was going to come from. Because you chose to be born in America, right? That's a result of God's grace. The fact that we get to gather as his church and praise him. That's a result of God's grace. Even the things that don't seem like that. Like like changing a one-year-old dirty diaper. That is God's grace mixed with a little bit of judgment in there. Right? But it's all for his grace. And it's all for his glory. And it's nearly impossible to humbly and to recognize his grace and to walk in that for his glory apart from humility. And humility is not the same as a lack of confidence. It's just an understanding of where blessing comes from and that it's not ultimately from you. It's from God. And Mary gets that right from the start. So now Gabriel speaks to her to kind of ease her her fear and confusion starting in verse 30. And this is what he says. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So like Elizabeth and Zacharias, when they were visited... And the angel told them, you're going to call your son John. Gabriel visits Mary and says, you're going to call your son Jesus. And Jesus was a common name in Israel at the time. And and essentially it means Yahweh saves. And after telling Mary about this son and what his name's going to be, Gabriel now gives her incredible revelation. Incredible insight in verses 32 and 33 about what this child's going to be like who he's going to be, and what ultimately he's going to do. And this is what it says. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
So Gabriel says, Mary, this son is going to be called the son of the Most High. Most High was a name for God in the Old Testament. So so she's being told this child is going to have a unique and intimate relationship with the Most High God. Not only that, we find out that this son is to be the long-awaited Messiah. The one from the line of David who will sit on the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob and establish a kingdom that will have no end. He's the Messiah. Now the name Messiah comes from a Hebrew word that means anointed one. And when that's translated, it's the equivalent in Greek to the word Christos, to which we get the word Christ. So essentially, when, when you say Jesus the Christ, it's the same as saying Jesus the Messiah, because the Messiah is the Christ, and the Christ is the Messiah. And the Jews, especially in the first century at this time, when they're under Roman occupation, They were living, this was a time of great messianic expectations. They're on pins and needles waiting for the Messiah to come. Because they believed that when Messiah came, he would bring political, social, and spiritual transformation with him. And they expected this Messiah to come through the line of David because that's what had been promised a thousand years previously in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And while the Jewish expectation for Messiah would end up being a little bit different than what Jesus came to do in his first coming, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, we'll unpack this more as we go through the book of Luke. What Gabriel says to Mary here is this, the one you've been waiting for, the one that the Hebrew scriptures have been pointing to, all the prophets, he's coming, and he's coming Through you. He's coming through you. And Mary hears this news. And it's hard to fathom what that must have been like. It's hard to know what exactly she got, you know. But we do know one thing. She asked a pretty interesting question after hearing that. And her question is this. Uh, how? How? Verse 34. Says Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Notice that Gabriel does not rebuke Mary for her question, like he did Zacharias. So I tend to think Mary's question, the source of Mary's question, is not one of doubt. It's just kind of one of confusion. Like, how is this going to happen? I am a virgin. And the, Now, the idea in the ancient world of a, of a God having sexual relations with a human and producing some demigod was not actually a foreign concept. But Gabriel goes out of his way here to explain, this is not what's going to happen. This is not what's going to happen with Mary. This will not be some sexual encounter, but rather the Holy Spirit, the Most High, God himself, is going to 
overshadow her. Luke uses the Greek verb here, episkiaso, which is translated overshadow, and it means to surround, to encompass, or metaphorically speaking, to, to influence. It's the word used when speaking of God's presence at the transfiguration. It's the word used when speaking to God's presence over the tabernacle. And this overshadowing by the Holy Spirit would result in producing a holy offspring, a son of the Most High. And this is actually a huge deal to the Christian story and an integral part of Christian salvation. Because here's the deal. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He stands outside of time. And Jesus Christ, the second member of the Holy Trinity, is eternal. And though God did not experience a birth, Jesus of Nazareth did. And so this was going to require a miraculous process of conception that ultimately culminates in the virgin birth. And the virgin birth does something incredibly important. Because it's through the virgin birth that Jesus is able to maintain his divine nature while assuming a human nature. You see, when, when God came to earth and took on flesh, he didn't release his divinity, he put on humanity. And so when the question arises, well, how can, how can Jesus be truly God and truly man? The answer is because of the virgin birth. Or when, when the question arises, well, how can Jesus have a human nature which is sinful and yet not sin? It's because of the virgin birth. When the question arises, well, how can Jesus have a righteousness that satisfies God and yet at the same time be authentically human? The answer is because of the virgin birth. So this is a massive Doctrine that has massive implications for us. And Mary receives this bombshell, this startling prophecy, right? And she responds with startling faith. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary says, I am a bond slave. I'm a maidservant. I'm a doule of the Lord. I belong to you. My life is hidden in yours. So have your way in me. That's what this young girl says. It's marvelous. Her faith is remarkable. The great reformer Martin Luther once wrote that there's three miracles at the nativity. That God became man, that the virgin conceived, and that Mary believed. That God became man, that the virgin conceived, and that Mary believed. And he's right, because this was no easy task Mary is going to be called to. I mean, it's important to remember that although Gabriel's announcement was glorious and one of good news, it also brought with it some great challenges for this girl. She's betrothed to be married to somebody. She's forever going to live with the stigma from the culture and the society that she lived in that that boy's illegitimate. That's not Joseph's boy. 
And she's going to live with that shame. She's going to experience danger. She could have been killed had Joseph not had a change of heart brought about by the Lord. These were consequences she would endure because of God's choice of her. And yet she said, have your way in me, O Lord. My life is not my own. And here Mary reminds us of a wonderful truth, which is that God's ultimate call on our life is not one towards security and comfort, but towards faith and obedience. He doesn't call us to comfort. He calls us to faith and obedience. And Mary reminds us of that. A faith and obedience done in love in response to his infinite love. Because the reality is, is that God does not promise to keep us out of harm's way. But he promises to be with us all along the way. But he does not promise to keep us out of harm's way. And I experienced that again this week as we, we buried, I oversaw Darlene Strader's burial. Longtime wayside As Jen Folio from our, from our life group, as we buried her father, as Lisa Schwinn's mother went to be with the Lord this morning. As the writer I, I posted on Facebook, Nabil Qureshi, a great young man, gifted, talented, a, amazing writer and thinker, went to be with the Lord at 34 because of cancer. You see, the Lord does not promise to keep us out of harm's way. He just says, I will be with you all along the way. And there will be one day when I will give you the eternal rest that you long for. When you receive your resurrected body. And when you walk upon this earth in its perfect restoration. Where sin and death and disease are no more. And with that, Gabriel now departs from Mary. And Mary soon departs thereafter to go visit her relative Elizabeth. Starting in verse 39. It says, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the, second, excuse me, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord." So Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, and this is not an easy journey. It's somewhat of an arduous journey to the Judean hill country. But she gets there, Elizabeth greets her, and boom, John the Baptist starts having a party in the womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she speaks words of, That is my Lord. Blessed are you. You talk about miracles, right? I've been around a lot of pregnant women in my life. I've never seen a first-time pregnant mom, six months pregnant, look at some girl who just got pregnant and say, yeah, this baby's okay, pretty special, but your baby, that's where it's at. Your baby, that's what I'm talking about. Your baby's special. Your baby is my Lord. That is directly from the Holy Spirit. And these confirmations by God that were given to Mary 
through Elizabeth lead to Mary just responding, just overflowing with praise in one of the more amazing sections in all of the New Testament. Starting in verse 46 and going through verse 55, we have a section known as the Magnificat, which is just this beautiful hymn of thanksgiving by Mary as she praises God. And it's one that's just filled with references and allusions to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures. And what we see as we read it is that this young girl loved God's Word. She had a love for God and a love for His Word that when she praised Him, it just overflowed in through her and out to the pages of these, word, of these Scriptures. And now structurally, this song divides into three parts. And the first part, Mary praises God for his work for her, for the favor he's shown her. We see that in verses 46 to 49. She says, my, my soul exalts. And that word can be translated magnifies, which in the Latin is magnificat. That's how we get the phrase. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. So Mary begins by looking at God's favor upon her. And notice then verse 47, Mary says that she rejoices in God my Savior. It's unfortunate that this even needs to be said. But Mary was a sinner, like all of us. She didn't put the pieces together right away about Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus rebukes her and his brothers because they think he's gone crazy. So Jesus, I mean, so Mary had to sort through some of this stuff. Mary is not sinless, nor is Mary somehow the, the co-redemptrix with Christ. She's not the dispenser of grace. And we should not believe those things about Mary because she does not believe those about herself. And yet, we must avoid the mistake where because we are so afraid of celebrating the importance of Mary, because some have done so in a way that overemphasizes her importance, we must not then go the other way and fail to embrace how wonderful she is. She is a woman of remarkable faith. And she's the one that God chose to birth the Messiah. And in, that, in my book, that makes her pretty stinking special. And while Mary is the only one, obviously, who gave birth to the Savior, she's certainly not the only one who's experienced the favor of God. Because while Mary spoke these words, those could be spoken by any of us here this morning. Because if you know Jesus as Lord, you have experienced the favor of God in your life. Mary was told, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And we who exist on the other side of the cross have been told, you are my beloved and I am in you. Because we on this side of the resurrection are indwelt by God's very spirit that points us back to the cross that stands behind us. So we as the church are deeply favored by God. Favored beyond measure. 
And so after Mary praises God for what he's done for her, he now praises God, she now praises God for what he's done for others. And she starts by looking at the character of God. Starting in verse 49, she says, Holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Now, the word for holy here is the Greek word hagios. And it really has two parts to it that need to be understood so you can get the full significance of it. One aspect of the holiness of God, one aspect of the word holy, is it means to be set apart. It means to be distinct. So God is holy in that he is set apart. He is distinct. There is no one like him. He is not part of the creation. He is the creator. And he is unique. He is a true one and only. So in that regard, God is holy. The second aspect of holiness speaks to God's, it's more of an ethical perfection. It's an ethical dimension to holiness. To describe God as holy is to speak of his moral perfection. That he is completely pure and righteous in everything that he does always, period. And so when we say God is holy, what we are saying is that he is set apart and that in his set apartness, he is completely perfect. He's completely perfect. And yet not only is he holy, but he is merciful. And this concept of mercy is really birthed out of the Old Testament in a Hebrew word named hesed. And hesed speaks to God's loyal covenantal love for his people. And God's mercy is, in display, is on display in this loyal love that extends from generation to generation to generation to generation. And when you stop and think about it, I have to warn you, this is one of my favorite things to preach about, so you're just going to have to bear with me. But when you stop and think about it, the intersection of God's holiness and mercy is one of the greatest things about our God. I mean, it is marvelous. He is a God who is so pure and holy that he is intolerable of sin. And yet he is a God who is so full of mercy and love that he freely chooses to forgive sin. And the intersection of his holiness and his mercy, the intersection of his purity and his grace, his judgment and his love is found most glaringly at the cross. See, God is too holy to overlook sin. And yet he's so full of mercy that he willingly went to the cross so that we might have forgiveness from sin. God came to do what we could not do. He entered humanity through the womb of Mary. He lived a perfect life. The only life ever lived to God's holy standard because it was lived by God himself. And then he willingly went to the cross for the payment of sin. And what this produces is something incredible. I mean, this is amazing about our God. Romans 3.26 says that in this great action, act of redemption, God becomes both the just and the justifier for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. God is the just and the justifier. He's just in that he is rendered holy because he judges sin, revealing his righteousness. And yet... He's merciful. He's the justifier. And yet, he's the one who does all the work. It's not what we do. So he is both 
just and the justifier. He is both holy and merciful. There's no God like our God. And if you really want your mind to just go, I love you, God, this can only happen because God exists in Trinity. Because he's tri-personal. Therefore, he can be both just and the justifier because it's he who does the work for us. The God of Islam, which is monopersonal, he can either, it's an either or. You're either merciful or you're just. But our God can be both. And it's just magnificent. God is holy. He is merciful. And Mary tells us he's powerful. Not only is power displayed on the cross, but also here on earth. Look at verse 51. It says, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So here Mary speaks to God's power to transform society. And what she does is she looks back at God's great activities in history. And this swells in her such a joy because she knows what that means for the future when Messiah comes. So these verses are both a historical look back, but maybe even more so a prophetic look forward to what life will be like when Messiah is here. Because Mary understood a really important truth which is that ultimate judgment, vindication, and hope find their final and full fulfillment in the reign of the Messiah, in the reign of Christ. And all the victories that happened beforehand are just shadows that point to the fullness of the victory that is to come. And while Mary was unclear, God is progressively revealing this. Mary is unclear to the fact that there's going to be two comings of Christ. What she does understand clearly is that the kingdom would not be here in its fullness until the king of kings arrived permanently in her presence. That the kingdom would not be there in its fullness until the king of kings arrived permanently in her presence. And 2,000 years later, guys, we're actually in the same boat. We know way more than Mary did, but the same holds true. Because while Christ may be Lord of the universe and reign in our hearts, I think it's safe to say there are many on this earth who do not recognize his reign, do not recognize his authority. So we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when what we call the second coming, when Christ will come and the kingdom will arrive in its fullness. And then thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this was Mary's hope. This, is where, this was her belief. And that's why she finishes by looking and praising God for his faithfulness, his hesed, his loyal love to her people, to Israel. Look at verses 54 and 55. It says, He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary says, God, you are a promise keeper. Thank you. It reminds me of um, a couple weeks ago when when I was in Africa. I spent a week in Uganda and a week in Rwanda. and, And in both places, I went to worship services. 
And in both worship services, one of the songs they sang was the same song. And it's a song called The Waymaker. And, and the chorus goes like this. I'm not going to sing it for you. But the chorus goes like this. It says, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. And in both places, as we gathered and sang the song, just repeated the chorus over and over and over again. Waymaker, miracle worker, light, uh, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. And as we come to the end of Mary's song of praise, this is essentially what she is saying. She is praising God for his faithfulness. And she says, God, you are the way maker. You are the miracle worker. You are the promise keeper. You are the light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. And so wherever you are this morning, wherever life finds you this morning, whether it be high or low, may we remember the goodness of God. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely faithful. He is infinitely loving. The God who is the great Augustine wrote, loves each of us as if there were only one of us. He loves each of us if there were, as if there were only one of us. For our God is perfect in holiness. He's perfect in mercy. He's perfect in power. He's perfect in love. He's perfect in faithfulness. He's the way maker. He's the miracle worker. He's the promise keeper. He's the light in the darkness. That is who our God is. So may we close with the words of our sister Mary. That could be our words. My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that we have nothing to bring. We cannot offer anything. Everything we have to offer is what you have given to us by grace. So God, would you humble us and help us recognize the goodness of your grace, the goodness of your faithfulness, the goodness of your love. How you are holy in power. You are merciful in love. And God, when we doubt that because life is hard and we're in a dark place, God, I pray that we would see the shining light of the cross bursting through, which is the great intersection of love and holiness. God, we were separated from you by our sin. And because of our sin, deserve death. And yet in your great mercy and love, God, you left heaven and came to earth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You put on an earth suit. Jesus Christ, our Lord, truly God and truly man. And you lived the perfect life we could not live. You died the sacrificial death that was meant for us. And you rose from the grave according with the scriptures. And God, as we look around this world and the hurt of this world, we see good and bad, but we recognize the fact that each day we're here is one day closer to you coming back. 
And so we look forward to that day, like Mary, where we look at the past of what you've done and how your promises are sure. And that gives us great joy and hope for the future when you come again and make all things new. But until that day, would you help us, God, be a people that walk in faith and obedience in response to your infinite love. And God, may we be a church that brings honor and glory to you. And so I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, would you fill them with your spirit, just like you filled Elizabeth. Would you cause them to see you for who you truly are so they can rejoice in my God, my Savior. And we pray these in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.